Let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 53. Last week we studied kind of the first part of this theme, and I'd like to explore that a little bit more. We had read this passage. Let's review just a little bit. How many... Okay. Who wrote Isaiah 53? Isaiah, yes, excellent, good, we're off to a great start. Okay, actually, that's up for debate in scholarly circles. They're wrong, you're right, okay? All right, who was king of, of Judah when Isaiah was written? Okay, don't be, don't be shy, don't hesitate, toss him out there. There were several, but who was king during this time? Hezekiah, excellent. How many, oh, which nation was, did, did Isaiah say was going to overthrow Judah. Which nation was going to overthrow them? Babylon. That's right. About how many years away was the Babylon um, destruction that Isaiah was predicting? About how many years away was that? About 100? There we go. Good, good. That's a tricky date to nail down because the the invasion and the siege, that, that was a, a decade-long process. Um, and so, you know, when you're dealing with a precise number, it's, it's kind of like, okay, when did it officially start? When would they have considered it to start? So on and so forth. It was about 100 years away. About how many years later would Judah return by the hand of a king that Isaiah predicts by name? About how many years away would that be? 180, good, good, excellent, 180 years away. And he's predicting here something that's going to take place in Isaiah 53. How many years into the future is that? Anybody remember? 700, about 700 years into the future. So Isaiah predicted something that was fulfilled literally the next day. He predicted something that was fulfilled about a month later, something that was fulfilled about 100 years later and 180 years later, and he's going to do it again for about 700 years later. Okay, That's really important, isn't it? That God is sort of giving us these stair steps. And so when we come to Isaiah 53, we see that God is going to reserve, going to restore the ultimate fortunes of his people through the ministry of his servant, his servant who would suffer, his suffering servant. And we noted that this, the suffering of this servant, the song for this begins back in verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. How shall he act wisely? He shall be high and lifted up. And that high and lifted up Action is exaltation, but that exaltation is not what you would expect exaltation to be. How is it that he's going to be honored and exalted? His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He's going to suffer. And this is what the passage is talking about. We noted last week that in Isaiah 52, the end of it, and 53, that there were several elements. There was prophetic element, 
the other themes are these, sin, substitution, humanness, resurrection, severity, and worldwide acceptance. All of those themes play themselves out in this passage. And we covered last week the prophetic elements. Now, let's move ahead to sin. Why, how is sin noted in these passages? One thing that you might want to do if you take notes on this, I would suggest that you take notes on a separate sheet. And then if you like to write in your Bible, go back later and fill it in in your Bible in a way. Otherwise, your Bible might get kind of all... It'd be hard to organize it right the first time you try it, is all I'm saying. So if you like to keep notes in your Bible, I'd suggest you might take these on a side sheet and then you go back and fill it in later. But I want us to notice, first of all, the vocabulary. Look at verse 5. We're told that this is rebellion. This is rebellion. This word is also used in other contexts as transgression. The same word, rebellion, is used in verse 8. In verses 5 and 11, the word iniquities is used. Uh, In verse 9, we're told that all people wander away, they go astray, they walk away like sheep. That is the word for sin. And then in verse 9, the word wicked is used. And so we've got these different ideas for sin, what that looks like. The word rebel or rebellion, the word that's used in verse 5 and 8, is the word transgression. And it means to sort of step over a known line. There's something that we know uh, sort of universally across all cultures that's wrong, and yet we do it anyway. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that all men are liars. And the longer I live in this life, the more I realize just how frequently people lie. In all cultures, we know lying is wrong. And yet, we continue to do it. People continue to do it. In Genesis 50, verse 17, the brothers of Joseph come to him and they say, will you forgive this rebellion? Will you forgive, here's our word, this peshang, this, this transgression? What was the transgression that they'd committed against him? Does anybody remember? The brothers of Joseph, what did they do? Yeah, they kidnapped him, threw him in a pit, sold him off into slavery. This is a, this is a known line that they'd crossed over and they transgressed. They moved all over it. They trampled on what their conscience told them not to do. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 8 through 10, this, is, this word peshang, this transgression or rebellion, is used for thieves Thieves who know what they're doing, they, they take their goods and they slaughter, they, they steal livestock and they slaughter it immediately and they sell it off. You go and you investigate and you find, all you find are, are fleeces scattered about. They've already taken what they wanted and absconced away with it. It was a few years ago, about this time of the year. It wasn't during the hunting season, it was just outside the hunting season. There'd been a big buck right above my house and I heard several gunshots, and went up there. I I saw a truck just a few minutes later speeding off, and I went up there when it finally got a little sunnier, and what did I see? A a deer that had just the finest parts of the meat cut off of it, and its rack cut off its head, and the rest of the carcass just left there. This is Pashang. This is transgression. This is rebellion. They knew what they were doing was wrong. They took what they wanted and they left it. 
This is wrong. That's what it says the servant is coming to deal with. We're told that there's iniquity. This is something that's crooked. It's something that's not specified, but something that's twisted. You, this is more of a, not a specific event, but it's a tendency. It's a, it's a habit. It's a way of mind. It's, it's crookedness. We would call it dysfunction. I have a friend who uh, lives in Florida, and he and his wife are foster parents. They foster all sorts of kids, older kids, younger kids. And what they say is they say, you know, this, this dysfunction that these kids bring into the home, they think it's normal. They've only ever known iniquity. They've only ever known crooked. They've only ever known twisted. And they think it's normal when they come into your home and suddenly you look weird to them because they're accustomed to dysfunction and twisted and wicked. This is what Paul, this is what Isaiah says, the suffering servant is going to die for, this bent towards sin. This word has association with bowing down to foreign gods, our tendency to worship idols. We're told that the suffering servant would also die for wickedness. This is a different word. This is a wicked criminal. This is a violence in criminality. We're told in Exodus, uh, Genesis uh, 18 verses 23 through 35, that this is the word that's used for Sodom and Gomorrah, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose violent homosexuality brought upon them the swift and terrible judgment of God. It wasn't just homosexuality. It wasn't just rape. It was both of those combined together in this awful haze of sinfulness. And God says that the suffering servant is going to die even for those sorts of awful, awful sins. In Exodus 9.27, this word for wicked is used for the Egyptians' genocide of the Hebrew babies. The suffering servant isn't dying for polite sins. He isn't dying for common sins. He's dying for the worst sins of all mankind. He's dying for the worst of us. And he's suffering for all sorts of wickedness and brokenness in this world. And then, what I want us to notice about this theme of sin in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, is that Isaiah isn't talking about other people. Okay? He's not talking about the Hitlers of the world or the Planned Parenthoods of the world. He's not talking about the Sodom and Gomorrahs of the world. He's talking about us. We, our. Notice this. He says, these are our griefs and sorrows, verse 4. We have all strayed, verse 6. We have gone our own way. The iniquity of us all, verse 6. The in verse 5, it, we're told that our transgressions, our iniquities, the chastisement, the punishment of our peace was laid on him. And so what Isaiah is telling us to do is to personalize the suffering of this servant. This isn't, this isn't grace for somebody else. It is. But it's not just grace for somebody else. It's grace for me. It's grace for you. It's grace to cover the most twisted and wicked and awful thing you've done. 
I mean, I'm sure this happens to you all the time. You have a thought that comes into your head. You didn't ask for it. You didn't strive for it. It's there. And you're ashamed of yourself for even having the thought. The suffering servant died for those worst of sins. He suffered for those awful things that we do. And he wants us to personalize the sacrifice that this servant is offering for our peace. And that sort of transitions us to the next thought, and that's the idea of substitution. Okay, that's our third theme of this passage, substitution. In fact, some theologians would tell you that that is the great grand theme of this particular servant song. There's prophetic elements, yes, they would say, and sin is certainly there. But what they would say is the doctrine of substitution is chiefly on display, and it's hard to argue with them. If you're going to if you're going to present the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, which is a big phrase, if you're going to present that doctrine, Isaiah 53 is definitely going to be on your list. Look at verse 4 of chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Go back up to 52.15. So shall he sprinkle many nations kings shall shut their mouths because of him. The word, and verse uh, 11 and 12 as well, we're told that, look at verse 11 and 12 of 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. The word bear is used again in verse 12. This word bear is a bit challenging to bring over into English, but the idea is to have the strength to endure or to bear up underneath of, to have the strength to do that. Okay. The, in Genesis, and I, I like these uses that are a little more um, mechanical because they kind of show us the way that the word works, that the, the picture that the author had in mind. In Genesis chapter 7, when God sent the rain and the floods, the waters bore up the ark. You can almost see the boat rising as the waters come up, and it just effortlessly pushes the boat up. And so that's what it says, that's what it says the servant is going to do for us. He's going to bear our sins, but more than that, he's going to bear them to carry them away. In Exodus chapter 32, the Israelites have fallen down and worshipped Baal. Or, I'm sorry, worshipped the golden calf. They've worshipped a god that they made, an idol that they've made. And Moses prays that God would take away, that this is our word, that he would bear away their sins. In Psalm 25, 18, David uses the word uh, as like a synonym for forgive. Pick them up and take them away. Take them far away from me. The servant of the Lord will bear our sins. So the idea here is not sharing. Okay? He doesn't, Jesus doesn't join us in punishment. In the sense of, you can imagine if my child did something wrong, and we'll use a she, she deserves a punishment, and one of my other sons steps in and says, to, to, 
what I would like to do is share in their punishment to form solidarity with them. I want them to know that they're not alone in this suffering. It's not that. <laughs> it would be the sibling coming in and taking it entirely off of their shoulders and onto their own. Jesus, the suffering servant, comes and takes our sins and is strong enough to take the sins, that twistedness, that brokenness, those awful sins that we previously discussed, and he's big enough and mighty enough to shoulder them, lift them up off of us, onto himself, and take them away such that they're forgiven. You don't bear them or the punishment for them anymore. Jesus has taken the entirety of it, the suffering servant has taken the entirety of it onto himself. One person, the sins of the world. Another one. We're told that God lays on him the iniquity of us all. This is um, the word for strike. In fact, it's a, it's a very strong word for, for strike. It's a military word for strike. When we teach our soldiers to stab with their bayonets, for example, we don't encourage them to run up to it and tickle the dummy. <laughs> it's a thrusting strike. And that's, that's the word. It's a strong, thrusting strike. The Lord strikes Jesus with a firm piercing maneuver. He let it strike him. God did that to Christ instead of doing that to us. We're told that the lamb, this lamb, the suffering servant, is like a lamb led to slaughter. And this evokes the entirety of the Jewish sacrificial system where people would bring lambs to be sacrificed, or other animals, but we've been covering this in Exodus chapter 12, of course, with the Passover. This little lamb, he's a year old. He associates people with good. People have only ever fed him. People have only ever cared for him. They've only ever gotten the burrs out of his coat and helped him along. And now, suddenly those hands that were so kind to him take a knife and slit its throat. This is a shock to the lamb, it must be. <laughs> and that's the idea here. The lamb is led innocently. Jesus is innocent in his suffering, but the Lord lays on the innocent lamb like a lamb to the slaughter. It says that the soul of this of this um, suffering servant makes an offering. His soul makes an offering. When he renders his life as a guilt offering, that's, that's the idea. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Now, this is the Hebrew word nephesh. And the Hebrew word nephesh has a very broad meaning. It 
can mean, uh, it, it's, a, yeah, it's a very broad word. It can have a lot of different senses. It can mean my body, okay? Uh, just kind of the physical, skin, bones, flesh kind of thing, my body. It can mean the immaterial part of me, my attitude, my outlook, my will, so on and so forth. Commonly, it, it, or it means like myself, like more holistically, okay? Like all of me, okay? You, my body and mind together in one. That's sort of what it means. And I think that's the, my personhood. I think that's the idea that this is taking here. That he offers his whole, he offers up his whole self as a guilt offering. When Jesus was on the cross, it wasn't just his body that was suffering, it was his soul that was in anguish. You know, he's grieving over the fact that his father has forsaken him. The sky grows black, he is alone, he is hurting, he's in pain, he goes through the same psychological trauma that we all go through when an emergency hits. We begin worrying about the people that we love, and he's, he's super concerned about the affairs of his mom. And he's, I'm sure, thinking to himself, she didn't necessarily ask for this. Please take care of her. And all that mental anguish in his whole person, not just his body, but his soul, as a substitute, as a guilt offering for us. It was our guilt, it was our sin that put him in that whole personhood suffering, and that's the point that this passage is making. In verse 11, it says, He shall bear. This is a different word again than was used before. He shall shoulder, he shall carry. The idea is to throw a sack on your shoulder and carry it off. Okay, Jesus is going to, the suffering servant, who we know to be Jesus, is carrying it away. So do you see all those different points of substitution? All those different points of substitution. There's another theme. The themes we'll pick up here quickly. He is fully human. His humanness is on display in this passage. This isn't... Uh, we know that the suffering servant, the Lord's servant, is... God himself, it is the, the king of ages, as it were, who's suffering. But this passage makes it clear that this person is also fully man. It says in verse 1 that he grows up. In verse 1, that he has no majesty. In verse 2, when Isaiah was trying to describe who this person is, he calls him a man of sorrows. He's a, an ish, a man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief. This isn't a supernatural figure or a nation that's on display. This is a person, a human. And in verse 9, it says, and, and also in verse 12, that he dies like any other man. It's not a, a fainting. It's not a, a fake death. It's a real death. Verse 9, they make his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although there was no, he had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It was the Lord's will to put him to death, to crush him. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out, and here's our soul word again, he poured out his whole person to death. This person really, truly, actually died. 
And this is where we get into some very important theology. Okay? Um, there is a tendency in false religion, and it's unfortunate, but it's even happening in conservative evangelical religion today. I'll give one example. I, um, we have uh, several families now in our church that have adopted. And um, so I got, uh, I'm like, okay, this is the increased interest in this in our body. And I got an invitation to go down to Salt Lake City on, what was the busy day? Tuesday. To go down Tuesday to a pastor's uh, invitation to talk about uh, adoption and fostering and how churches can be good resources for these people and uh, the people that want to do this. And um, I went there and the person presenting had an argument on the screen. Um, this is a, I didn't know that this was the person running it, but a progressive Christian, a liberal-minded Christian who doesn't believe necessarily that the Bible is the infallible word. And it said that the, uh, this doesn't diminish at all the desire to adopt. I'm just saying this, I'm giving an example of how something can be off. They had on the screen, it says the incarnation is the heart of the gospel. The incarnation is the heart of the gospel. Somebody tell me why that's wrong. Yes, Matthew. And it's very wrong, by the way. Matthew, tell me why. No, it is not. It is not. Can somebody tell me why that's so important? Yes, ma'am. Jesus as God, God becoming man. There are, there is that heresy. Yes. What else? I thought I saw another hand, or was maybe maybe somebody was scratching their head. <laughs> you have to be careful scratching your head because I'll just call on you. Okay, Daniel. That's right. That's right. Matthew was getting along these lines. Where he he became a man not in an end to itself, right? He became a man to do something. And what was the thing he was going to do? As Matthew said, to suffer. It pleased the Lord to crush him. And to rise bodily. This is why Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And then he rose from the dead. Resurrection, right here, verse 10. Let me finish this point, and I'm going to come back to what I was saying before. It says that he shall make an offering for guilt, and he, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Verse 11, he shall see and be satisfied. 
This person who became a man who suffered death because of our sin in a violent and grotesque way, he suffered because of the awful nature of our sins, his whole person, mind and body suffered because of us, and he will see again, he will rise again, he will live again, and God will prosper him because of that fact. And here's the point that I was getting at before. Within false religions and even in bad forms of Christianity, they make this event to become an example to be emulated and followed. An example only. And this is not an example only. This is a historical event where a transaction took place, where your sins were laid on him, and he rose again, as Scripture said he would, as a fact, and now, factually, you can be forgiven. Before the throne, before the judgment of God, you can hold in your hand genuine, factual pardon in the court of God. It's not an, merely an example. It's not merely something we should emulate as though any of us could take the sins of the world on our shoulders. It's not an attitude of hopefulness that we need to display. It's an event where the awful wrath of God crushed his son because he loved us. And his son was high and lifted up. And because of that, he's exalted. I've run out of time. We'll revisit this. We've got two more themes. Severity and worldwide acceptance. Okay, uh, any questions about what we've covered today? We have just enough time. We don't have enough time to cover anything else, but I do have time if there's any questions. Yes, ma'am. Well, not all are saved, okay? The people who ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sins, those are the ones who are justified. And the people who die in their sins refusing to ask for that forgiven forgiveness are not justified. The classic example of this is Judas Iscariot. He betrayed Jesus. Jesus was killed. Judas then went back to the authorities with the money in his hands and he felt really bad about it. He, he, said, I, he said, this man didn't deserve death. I betrayed him. They said, what's that to us? They didn't comfort him. <laughs> that He was a useful idiot in their hands. And he took the money and he threw it on the ground and ran off he did not ask God for forgiveness. Had he gone to the Lord and said, please forgive me, the Lord would have absolutely forgiven him and declared him to be righteous. But Judas hanged himself. And Jesus says that he, it was better that he would have never been born. So not all are declared righteous. 
only those who entrust themselves to this sacrifice that Jesus offers. Okay, other questions? It's an awful reality, isn't it? So what are we going to do about it? Well, I hope the, the sense of forgiveness that you have will lead you to an almost manic urge to tell people that they can be forgiven. Because once eternity hits, that's all that's going to matter. So let's live like that. Let's pray. Father, would you give us such a relief for the forgiveness that we have from our sins that we would be so eager and willing to tell other people about it so that they might not come under the condemnation that their sins deserve. May they accept the substitute that the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, offers. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.